You know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit the views. Which can be uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. Can't wait till you make up your mind. Oh, wait for me. Uh, uh, Lady Jennifer, I don't think you should come. Because I'm a woman? Yeah, uh, no. Uh, well, in a way, yes. That settles it, and I'm certainly coming. You can't go alone. Oh, you're right, miss, he can't. I'm going with him, but you're staying here. Oh, now, look here. Uh, you're a nurse, you said. Yes, but what's that got to do with it? I've got hundreds of injured men back at my headquarters. They need the help of someone like you. Yes, I suppose you're right. Tell Lieutenant Carstairs that... Well, tell him I'll see him when you all get back. Right. Good luck. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature the podcast taking you to the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We are currently in March 1980, and we are beginning Key to Time Month here on Doctor Who Literature. Yes, for the next four weeks, we are covering the four key to time novelizations put out back to back to back to back between March and June 1980, all written by Terence Dix, covering the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth segments of the key to time, beginning with the Stones of Blood. Last month, we did cover the first segment of the key to time, the Rebos Operation, teleplay by Robert Holmes, novelization by the great Ian Martyr. The novelization for the second segment, The Pirate Planet, by Douglas Adams, a novelization by James Goss, does not come out in publication order in the targets for another 40-plus years, so it'll be quite some time before we get to that on the podcast. But because segments 3 through 6 did come out sequentially, we'll be covering those over the next month, including episodes that are scheduled to come out on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. This week, as you heard during the cold open, we said goodbye to two very large figures in the classic Doctor Who community. Writer Chris Boucher, who wrote The Robots of Death and The Face of Evil and Image of the Fendal, passed away at age 79. We have already covered the novelizations of all three of his Doctor Who televised adventures. He also wrote four full-length novels in the late 1990s and early to mid-2000s, which we are probably not covering on this show, anytime soon at least. He wrote some of the best dialogue that you will ever get in Classic Who, including the very famous audio clip which opened this episode. And we also lost Jane Sherwin, an actress who appeared in the first half of the 10-part 1969 epic the War Games, which we discussed on this show back in episode 50, a little over a month ago. And Sherwin, for a time, also was married to Derek Sherwin, a writer and producer involved with Doctor Who in the late 60s and early 70s, in the transition from black and white to color, in the transition from the show to what is now known as the Unit Era. Jane Sherwin passed away this week as well, at age 88, 
both she and Chris Boucher will be missed. May their memories be a blessing. Earlier this week, I appeared on Trap One in an episode covering a new short fiction anthology called Origin Stories. I will post a link to that in the show notes. Mark and Ruth Long and myself discuss the 11 stories in the collection in pretty deep detail. This was also the day, well, it's actually the day after the day, Saturday, December 17th, when new costumes were revealed for the new Doctor, Shudi Gatwa, and for the new Companion, played by Millie Gibson. This is an audio podcast, so I can't exactly show you pictures, but both costumes are visually striking and adorable. I am very much looking forward to seeing a full season of Doctor Who with those costumes, and more importantly, with the actors in them. Earlier this week as well, on the Doctor Who Target Facebook group, there was a very interesting thread about the novelization of The Deadly Assassin. Significantly, a plot hole, which may be perceived in Deadly Assassin, for a story that's about the Time Lords and regeneration. Just about every Time Lord who is killed in the story does not regenerate, including the President, and Chancellor Goth, and Runcible, and the Captain of the Guard, Hillred. In attempting to work our way through this plot hole, many of the users on the Doctor Who Target Facebook group uh, explained or tried to explain various elements of regeneration, largely resorting to headcanon rather than to any explanation that is given on screen in the story, which sidesteps the question of why all these characters who are presumably Time Lords are failing to regenerate. It's interesting how much Doctor Who mythology and lore resides firmly in our heads rather than on screen. Perhaps that's a reason why Doctor Who is still going so strong after 59 plus years. These are stories that force you to think and come up with explanations and rationalizations. Mark and I talked about Deadly Assassin on this show back in episode 36, and we touched on that topic as well although, of course, not in the same depth that you would get in a Facebook thread. But if you have not heard that episode yet, please go back in the archives after this one and listen to it. It is a very good one, even if I do say so myself. This week, we are talking about the novelization of The Stones of Blood. It is the Terence Dix novelization from 1980. It is not the David Fisher novelization, which came out first as an audio in 2011, and then as a print Target novelization under the revived Target imprint in 2022, earlier this year. I moderated a Trap 1 episode about the Fisher novelization of Stones of Blood a couple of months ago, joined by friends of this program, Jim Sangster and Fraser Gregory and Keith Say. A very good episode as well. I discussed the Terrence novelization in that episode by way of comparison to the Fisher book. We are not talking about the Fisher book this week. Again, that will be covered in publication order. That is a very, very long way off from now, even for a weekly show. It'll probably be at least two years, if not three, before we get to the recent revived Target imprint books, of which Stones of Blood and the Androids of Tara are among the most recent. This week, we do have a Trap One co-host joining me, UK Jason to be distinguished from your host, U.S. Jason, over on Trap One. And the two Jasons will be discussing Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood. 
We also have one new email this week at our email inbox, Doctor Who Literature. That's drwholiterature at gmail.com. We have a message from Adam Turnbull. Adam does not tell us where he's from, but I do appreciate the email. Adam writes, love the podcast and the talk on the Target books. Thank you, Adam. Back to the email. I think my favorite is the first Dalek story. Love the changes David Whitaker did to it. Yeah, again, Adam, thanks. We actually covered that. It was my very first episode. And when I say we, it was just me. That was before I had weekly guests on the show. That was episode one, released a little over a year ago. At some point, I will probably go back and bring in guests and redo those first four episodes where I did not have guests in the beginning. That covers the three 1960 Frederick Muller novelizations, as well as Doctor Who and the Zarbi and Doctor Who and the Crusaders, and the very first of the original Target books from 1974, Doctor Who and the Spearhead from Space. There is, I'm sure, Adam, you know this, an illustrated version of Doctor Who in An Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, which just came out a month ago as I record this, November 2022. It was mentioned by Paul Simpson, who had some involvement with the manuscript, and Paul discussed that when he was on the show covering Doctor Who and the Death of the Daleks. And the illustrator is Robert Hack. I am hoping to cover that in a bonus episode at some point in the future. I can't tell you exactly when, but again, there's really no dispute that the David Whitaker adaptation of Doctor Who and the Daleks is one of the finest ever bits of Doctor Who literature. Back to the email. Also love the two Doctors once you get to it. Thank you again so much, Adam. I always appreciate the emails. Please keep them coming. The Two Doctors is the 100th target novelization, and this is episode 55, so that means we are 45 novelizations away from getting to Doctor Who and the Two Doctors. That is probably going to be about a year from now. You can expect that probably by the end of 2023. I do not yet have a guest lined up to discuss that book with me, but it is a special book and a multi-doctor story and the only novelization completed by Robert Holmes himself. So that is hopefully going to be a very, very big episode with lots of guest voices. Speaking of very big episodes, this one is already shaping up to be at least 90 minutes. So let's get to it. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our Doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time Ram. Putting the wrong Doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. I am now joined, confusingly, by somebody who has the same name as me. So when both of us wound up on the same Trap One episode, my initial reaction was to say, well, I'm Jason M. And my guest today said, wait a minute, I'm also Jason M. So on Trap One, we go by U.S. Jason and U.K. Jason, in case our accents are not enough to tell us apart. Jason McLaughlin, welcome. The oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
I think we should subtitle this episode the two the two Jasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's pretty good. The two Jasons. How did you end up uh, discovering or getting discovered on Trap One? Uh, I think Mark sought me out. Really, um, I was quite like um, just on Twitter. I used to tweet quite a lot about mainly uh, Doctor Who uh, back then. And, um, you know, Mark just reached out to me, uh, you know, he obviously followed me initially and then just said, I do a podcast. Would you be interested to appear? And I think one of the first ones that I did was, um, it might have been, uh, it was one of the Capaldi ones, I think, from probably around about Series 10. Um, I think it was um, uh, the... The Extremist Trilogy. So uh, I think I did the Pyramid at the Top of the World, the middle um, segment of that. And then it it just grew from there. That was a really interesting trilogy until you get to the very last five minutes of the third episode where the whole thing kind of gets undercut. But that was right around the time that I got on Trap One. Mark reached out to me right around the same time, middle of... 2017 because he and I had followed each other's blogs and he brought me on to review one of the then 12th Doctor new series adventure novels I think Diamond Dogs by Mike Tucker so probably a month or two after you first debuted on the program I would have made my debut as well but we ended up not being on the same show together for a few more years after that yeah, I remember, I think I did the follow-up one was The Eaters of Light as well, which was Rona Munro's return to writing Doctor Who. And then from that, we did um, we did a Chris Chibnall um, review with Dinosaurs on a Spaceship because he'd been, I think not long after that, he was announced as the new showrunner. And then we covered Sharda, uh, the animated, full animated version that was released. And then we went from there. Yeah, I was on basically every three months after my first episode. And I know I did a audio commentary for one of the very early Chibnall slash Jodie Whittaker episodes, the Rosa Parks episode. And then you and I did a toy episode together. I want to say it was either the Sensorites or Keys of Marinus or maybe both. I think we did both. I think, you, yeah, you, we were on both because you were very uh, um, praiseworthy of the Sensorites. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, then we, I think all of us were quite equally uh, dismissive of some parts of Keys of Moranus because it's, uh, it's your typical Terry Nation pot boiler. Yeah, I'll be covering the novelization of Keys of Marinus in about another month on that show. And we'll be doing a very a very overdue critical reappraisal of the novelization, which uh, is not one of the more beloved ones in the target line. And I'll be giving my best defense. And I say will be giving. The episode was already recorded back in September for guest availability reasons. So that's already in the can and waiting its release. But I have already discussed and will be releasing later uh, the best defense that I can of Keys of Marinus. But yeah, everybody has their own hill to die on in fandom. And my hill to die on is that Sensorites is criminally underrated. So I'm always happy to get a chance to discuss that one in its best possible light. Of course. <laughs> I think we've all got like a favorite, haven't we, of one that's like not 
really uh, beloved by like probably the majority of fandom. I'm actually tomorrow interviewing the author of the Sensor Rights novelization, but not for this podcast. I'm doing that for a fanzine project about a different novelization, but maybe I'll express to the author how fond I am of the TV story that he novelized. Is that Nigel Robinson? Who yes, novelized? yes, it is. Yeah, I thought it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he assigned himself sort of the less beloved books to novelize. So he also did Underwater Menace. Yeah, I think toward, that was towards like the end of the range, wasn't it? So the the, uh, the all the good titles had uh, gone by that point. It's interesting though because for Underwater Menace, he substantially rewrites the last episode of the story and adds a lot more drama and symbolism which you would not have gotten if you're watching underwater menace part four on television so <laughs> when that was finally released as a video that you can watch it was quite a surprise to me that underwater menace part four was much much less interesting than the novelization i, I think that's probably probably true of a lot of like um target novelizations certainly some of the uh, the early ones where um like you know terence and malcolm hulk really kind of like expanded on, on the, the tv episodes and then when you actually got round to seeing it you were quite disappointed i know i remember when um, i first saw day of the daleks which was one of the first doctor videos that i bought um i was quite surprised that those opening scenes with um, you know the the time paradox with the doctor and joe appearing twice in the tardis front they weren't there it was like whoa what's going on there's stuff missing here <laughs> that's right that's right yeah there are several books that you could say that about what's interesting is the book we're talking about today is almost the opposite it was a book that ended up getting rewritten in order to add in material that the author thought should have been in the novelization but wasn't but we'll come back and talk about stones of blood in a few more minutes what is your other venture your uh, youtube channel my well youtube channel uh, which i started um, way down in uh, the lockdown when during the pandemic it's called Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, and um, it came about really because um, my son, like the year before, had like said he wanted a YouTube channel, and at the time he was about nine years old, and I thought, oh, that's a bit too, you know, thing for a nine-year-old. And he said, well, you know, he showed me some other children's channels that they set up and stuff. And I said, well, I'll I'll own it, I'll direct it. And but you do the content, you come up with the ideas. Um, so that's been running. You know, he, he does it occasionally. It's kind of like a typical thing that a kid does. It, it, he's all full of ideas, and then he goes on to the next thing. So, you know, um, yeah, yes, and then yes. He just um, during lockdown, and I think I was furloughed. He just kind of said, "Why don't you start a YouTube channel, Dad?" And I was like, "What on earth would I?" do a YouTube channel on. And then suddenly he kind of like looked at me because this is this front room is a geek room and it became my office during COVID. And he sort of like, like looked at all that <laughs> that's there. And he basically said, oh, well, wow. look, look at what you've got, you know, and look what you collect. And it was like, right, okay. And... I'd actually started watching toy channels because I'd, you know, during furlough, you, you know, you do so much um, DIY and stuff, and then you kind of get a little bit bored, you know. And I was kind of like digging out old um, Star Wars toys that I had from the 
you know, the like 70s, the early 80s that I'd kept. And then I was watching YouTube channels that were, you know, covering that. And then I looked into like new stuff and they covered stuff that I collected as well. And I was kind of like, that's where it took off, you know, and it's kind of like grown since then. I've just recently passed 500 subscribers, which I'm really pleased about because I never thought I'd ever get that many people, you know, um, watching my videos, you know, even though some of them are quite um, um, highly viewed. My highest video's been viewed by 42,000 people, which I just find bizarre. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre that somebody's, like, viewed one video that many times. It's, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice way to show off one of my hobbies. That's a lot more subscribers than people who listen to this podcast so i guess this youtube thing is the wave of the future huh well i'll give you a plug next time we um, cover some doctor who things as I've, I've plugged the trap one podcast a couple of times uh in the video so i'll definitely be giving you a the a plug as well thank you i don't have much video chops and you can see that I'm recording from my kitchen slash dining room, so I don't have the world's most entertaining background. So maybe I'll hire you as my uh, video consultant at a later date. But since we are talking on video but only recording on audio, I want to do a quick guided tour of the room you're in because it's a lot more interesting than my Brooklyn kitchen slash dining room. So I can see <laughs> over your right shoulder what appears to be an autographed movie poster of The Empire Strikes Back. Yes. That is actually one of the probably um, probably most expensive pieces of memorabilia that I've got. Um, I got it from a um, movie store, uh, which obviously dealt in um, you know lots of things. They dealt in props as well, but they also dealt in signed merchandise. And it's quite fortunate that it has uh, signatures from all the main cast of the um the film including Alec Guinness it was uh, wow. apparently it has a certificate of authenticity which you kind of like take on face value but um it was apparently it was an American Film Institute um showing of the Empire Strikes Back where they got most of the signatures from so it's got the main cast you've got Harrison Ford's on there Mark Hamill Carrie Fisher uh also has George Lucas and George, uh, John Williams's signature on there and uh, Irving Kirshner, who was the director as well. So, um, yeah, it was quite a prized um, piece in my uh, collection. And many of those names are no longer with us, so that uh, yeah, certainly yeah. makes it a rarity. Uh, I met Julian Glover at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles. I want to say it was 2016. So I bought. I'm not really an autograph collector, but my daughter at the time was a huge very young Star Wars fan. So she's the only, at the time, the only uh, kindergartner in her class who had an autographed uh, photo signed by General Veers. But that's the, pretty much the limit of my Star Wars memorabilia collection. Well, interestingly, um, I recently, the last signature I got um, was um, Julian Glover's, I think it's his half-brother, um, Robert Watts, the film producer, who obviously produced helped produce the Star Wars films, produced the first three Indiana Jones films and produced Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well. So he's got quite an extensive um, like career in the film industry. And he was at, a, I think it was Wales Comic Con. And uh, I decided to obviously not ask him anything about Star Wars or Indiana Jones because he's probably had those questions 
you know, 10 to a dozen, you know, and I always think that if you're meeting somebody, always ask them about something that they probably wouldn't be asked about. Um, so I asked him about who framed Roger Rabbit and we had a good like 10 minute conversation because he was just telling me just how technically difficult that film was to plan film and then do all the post-production then to get it um, released. Um, so yeah, a lovely bloke, lovely bloke. Yeah, it's a pretty prestigious filmography, and I think I want I haven't seen I haven't watched this in the nineteen eighties, but I believe Who Framed Roger Rabbit was Bob Zemeckis, who had also done the Back to the Future. So he certainly made a career yeah, out of uh, as a director of biting off more than he could chew and yes, making it all yeah. work. <laughs> and you also have to your right, I think you showed me a bookshelf that has a pretty extensive Doctor Who collection on it. Oh yeah, uh, well we've got the I've got quite a lot of big finish uh, that's there that you can see. Yes. Um, so that's where all my big finish CDs are. There's quite a few Doctor Who books down there, but uh, they're a bit it's a bit untidy in that little corner. I but see what appear to be a number of novelizations as well. The novelizations are actually all in a storage box somewhere, so I had to dig out <laughs> with me <laughs> me stones <laughs> and blood. Um. But over here, you've got four cabinets, and three of them are mainly all the Doctor Who character options figure range. And then you've got the, the end cabinet is the Star Wars um, Hasbro Black Series stuff. And, of course, you have the Tom Baker scarf on the same wall next to your action figures. Yes, I do. Amy Pond is currently wearing it. A, a cardboard standee of uh, Amy Pond is, is nailed to the back of... Uh, <laughs> that door. Oh, that's pretty impressive. And I think you have a standee of Harley Quinn behind you as well on the back wall. Very well spotted. Yes. Along with a um, signed poster from X-Men two as well. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I couldn't figure out cause Harley Quinn's head is blocking the name of the movie. And I couldn't quite tell from this distance and with my eyesight, who was the line of figures striding towards <laughs> the camera on the poster. And if you turn it this way, you've got, uh, if you can see in front of me, so we've got some more Doctor Who um, figures and stuff there. Some of the, uh, the Doctor Who busts, which were discontinued, actually. They never did a full range of the Doctors, sadly. And a um, Raiders of the Lost Ark signed poster as well. And who signed your Raiders of the Lost Ark poster? Uh, again, we've got um, some of the cast. Um, we've got um, Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Alfred Molina... Uh, Michael Shared, who is a famous Doctor Who guest star, he's the um, yes. U-boat captain. He's, he's briefly seen for about two seconds in the film, but he gets a credit. Uh, he's on there. Frank Marshall, the producer, uh, John Rhys-Davis, and uh, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and um, John Williams as well. So You've got two John Williams autographs in the same room. Yeah, and a lot of expensive autographs, <laughs> Yeah, John Reese davis is coming back for the next and last Indiana Jones movie, number five, the trailer for which just dropped a couple of weeks ago. And both Julian Glover and Michael Sheard had more prominent parts in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Glover as the principal villain and Michael Sheard in a slightly longer cameo as one Adolf Hitler. Yes, that's right, in the Last Crusade, yeah, as well. 
so let's backtrack and talk about uh, Doctor Who, which is the primary reason why most of us are here. Now, you're, of course, from the UK. You would have had a different exposure and fandom experience than I would have had. When did you first get into the show, and who was the Doctor at the time? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, we're of a very similar age, uh, aren't we? Uh, I've just turned 50, uh, you know, um, and I believe you're soon to be of that milestone. Oh, no, you're you're about twice my age. I'm a young uh, spring chicken of 25. <laughs> right, yes. So Tom Baker was my, my doctor growing up, and um, I, I've I've been a Doctor Who fan since I can remember. Um I always say my earliest memory of the show was um, Genesis of the Daleks. Um, I think it would probably be, I would be far too young for the original broadcast of that, which would have been me probably being about two and a half. And I don't think I can remember that. So it must have been the following year when they repeated the 90-minute edited version at Christmas. Right. They used to do they used to do um, regular like movie editions of uh, previous stories. Um, my proper full memory of the show uh, after that is The Brain of Morbius, which um, I still remember. Um, at the time, we were living at our uh, one of the uh, pairs of grandparents because my parents were in between houses because my dad had just set up a business. So, we, you know, we were kind of... He'd, he'd sold one house to use the money to set up a business. Right. Oh, so we were living at grandparents, and I still remember the way they had set up. Is they had the kind of like the back room was where the TV was, and it led into the kitchen. And and whenever it used to get too scary, instead of going behind the sofa, I used to watch Doctor Who through the crack in the door between the kitchen and and that room. And I have distinct memories of um, the cliffhanger with Morbius waking up without the head on. And obviously blind Sarah is like unaware that it's behind her. And that's probably my earliest memory of the show. Um, and then I kind of like, I don't have many memories of Seeds of Doom or Mask of Mandragora, but I do remember from The Hand of Fear onwards virtually. And it was it was the must-see show. Um, I never really ever tried to like make sure I, I missed an episode uh always used to watch it um it's funny enough because when obviously we were doing the stones of blood and it was during the key to time season and i think it was the android Tara. i was invited to a birthday party of a school friend and um i remember asking can we watch doctor who <laughs> to which um, <laughs> My friend's mother kind of said, it's a birthday party. We're not having the television on. And me being quite crestfallen because I, I was knew that I was then going to miss an episode. Um, <laughs> but then the following summer, um, they repeated The Pirate Planet and The Androids of Tara. So I finally like got to see the full story, um, which was uh, <laughs> a relief. Because obviously back in that day, you didn't have video recorders. You didn't have iPlayer. You didn't have video releases, DVDs, you know, no streaming. Um, kids today don't realise how fortunate they are, as I keep reminding my son, who's 12. Yeah, my daughter's about the same age, and she's very much of the on-demand mentality and mindset. Yeah. And, 
when she was four years old and there was an advertisement for a particular show that she wanted to watch on Nick Jr., one of the kids' cable channels, she didn't understand the concept of first broadcast, so she woke up at 8 in the morning asking to watch the show, knowing that it was the premiere date, unaware that it wasn't premiering until 11 o'clock and it didn't automatically drop on the on-demand <laughs> channel at, at, at the stroke of midnight. So that took a little bit of explaining. And that was, of course, the problem that I would never have had growing up when it was on once and maybe repeated two or three times throughout the day, like Sesame Street. But otherwise, uh, you would only get to see a first-run primetime program maybe a maximum of three times. First run, a couple of repeats during the summer, and then that was it. So, yeah, you you and I uh, come from the old-school wilderness generation of fandom where you'd better watch it when it first aired. Otherwise, you were uh, going to be in a deep, dark hole for a long time. But you're only about six years old at that time, so that's a very young age for Androids of Terror to be appointment viewing. Oh, well, yeah, but Doctor Who was appointment viewing. You know, I'll, I said I had two heroes as a, as a kid growing up. Um, you know, one was Luke Skywalker when obviously Star Wars finally came around to these shores uh, Christmas 1977 because we had to wait for films about six months back in those days. Um, and obviously Tom Baker as Doctor Who was like, you know, my other hero. Um, my gran um, knitted me a Doctor Who scarf, which I think ended up about 14 feet long um, by the time <laughs> she finished it because she used to add bits on it every like year. As I grew a little bit more, yes. it wasn't it wasn't screen accurate. She just used whatever like bits of wool she had left over, um, you know. And I still have that. It's, it's in the wardrobe upstairs because it's one of those things that I could never ever throw out because it has so many childhood memories, you know. Um, but you know, obviously, you know, I've got the screen accurate one from uh, that was produced a couple of years back, uh, you know, on display here, but. Yeah, you know, Doctor Who was was it, it was big. It was huge. It was. Um, it's difficult to obviously explain to obviously anybody who's not British because you guys obviously used to it shown on PBS, wasn't it? So it was shown at different times of the day, either late at night or in the afternoons, depending on which like PBS station was showing it across the country. I believe. I've mentioned this before on this show, but I was spoiled for choice because being in the New York City suburbs on our cable system, we had five different PBS networks from the northeastern United States. I was able to watch the show out of Boston, Long Island, New York City, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So there was a time in the mid 80s where I could watch Doctor Who different doctors on different networks multiple times a week. My show, my station on Long Island would air the show 25 minutes a night at 7 o'clock. New Jersey Network would do a Pertwee or a Hartnell episode in movie format on Saturday nights. Uh, the Boston Channel was about three weeks ahead of us on Peter Davison at the same time that our channel was showing uh, at 7 p.m. So if you were watching Channel 20 instead of Channel 21, you could see Caves of Androzani out of Boston three weeks before it first premiered in the United States. And so on and so on and so on. So for a while, I got very good at knowing when I had to watch Doctor Who on one of five different stations. Which makes for wow. a lot of Doctor Who watching when I'm 11, 12, 13. Yeah, I mean, that, that's envious. I mean, because, I mean, I didn't really kind of like start to see the back catalogue 
until like the videos started to be released in the late 80s and they became like affordable they were about 10 pounds which you know was like the budget price of a VHS tape um so I remember um I kind of like fell out of love a, a little bit with Doctor Who like during the mid 80s uh, around the time Peter Davison left um I still watched the show out of habit but you know I didn't collect the Doctor Who magazine anymore and, and you know I didn't I, I, none of my other friends like seemed to like be watching the show again and it was only like the fan gene in me was reignited when um, Remembrance of the Daleks went out and that cliffhanger of episode one with the Dalek climbing up the stairs and you know and Sylvester McCoy being trapped at the doorway and I was like oh my god and that really like reinvigorated my interest in the show and I remember I went out like the next day bought the Doctor Who magazine that was like you know on the newsstands and then with my birthday money that that year uh, I bought Day of the Daleks um, on video. I bought Revenge of the Cybermen on video because these were the only ones that were available. Terror of the Zygons and uh, Spearhead from Space. You know, so um, that was kind of like the only real opportunity to see past Doctor Who because when they used to repeat it in the UK on BBC One, they'd always repeat stuff from the previous season. It was very rare that you ever got repeated at old episodes or ones that weren't of that doctor uh the only time being was obviously waiting for the transition from tom baker to peter davison bbc2 did a season running into peter davison's series for series called the five faces of doctor who where yes. they show on a on an earthly child the crotons the three doctors carnival of monsters and then logopolis to then run into Castrovalva. So that was your first opportunity, really, to see past doctors. You know, um, if you were lucky, you'd catch the odd clip on a TV show or something. But um, yeah, we're quite envious that, you know, people in the US and, and Australia as well, you, you were always on a constant loop of old episodes. Um, and I remember, because obviously there wasn't a lot of stories released um, in the 80s and it didn't really like kick into releasing them until like the early 90s and they used to be classified in the back of like Doctor Who magazine and other like genre magazines like Starburst where people would be selling bootleg copies of you know old episodes and yes I sent off for them you'd send off a, a blank videotape and then it like Six weeks, two months later, you get a very dodgy copy. <laughs> Third, fourth generation of Genesis of the Daleks or or Planet of the Spiders. And some of those were actually taped from America because they actually had American advert breaks in them. <laughs> and like where they'd like not quite paused it in enough time. So um, I did see like obviously how PBS used to like show it and they used to have like little idents when their advert break came in the middle of their episode and they'd have that little Doctor Who logo just just like that, you know, with the not the diamond, but the, like the the seventies the logo but without the diamond behind it. So yes. it was interesting to see obviously how it was broadcast over in in the States. Yeah, we had two different distributors. In the seventies we got the commercial package from Time Life and they hired prestigious actor Howard De Silva, who is best known as playing Benjamin Franklin, 
both in the musical 1776 and in the movie about Benjamin Franklin's life aired in the appropriate museum in Philadelphia, where the Constitution was ratified and the Declaration of Independence was signed. So if you go to Philadelphia and you go to the museums, you will see a lot of Howard De Silva, who's been passed on for many years now. But that was the package that was aired commercially, and it had Howard De Silva do an intro after the opening credits, but before the episode started. And then he would yeah. do an outro in between the cliffhanger and the closing credits. But in order to make room for a couple of minutes of Howard De Silva narrating what's going on, you had to lose a couple of minutes of episode content. So, And then, of course, there were commercial breaks hacked in, whereas the show was not edited in the UK with commercial breaks in mind. Then later on, we got the Lionheart package, which did not have Howard De Silva and was mostly unedited. And that was aired on PBS, which does not have commercial breaks. But occasionally, and I don't know why this is, maybe some historian out there knows this, sometimes Lionheart was only able to get a time-life copy of the show. So there's this famous movie format viewing of Underworld which has about 30 seconds of the Howard De Silva narration in movie format where the episode one cliffhanger would go. So really strange things like that. So when I taped Pyramids of Mars off air in the late 80s, it was with a time-life Howard De Silva narrations that had been recorded in the 1970s. And I had never heard of the Howard De Silva narrations before that. And I thought I was watching the show how it was actually aired in the UK. Oh, not right. realizing, of course, that Howard De Silva does not have a, a British accent. <laughs> Nothing to do with Doctor Who at all over here. Yeah. I, I am sure he was. He was. It was much later in life. Uh, by the time he did this, I'm sure he was very confused as to what all this was about. I, I, if there are any descendants of Howard Silverblatt, his real name, out there, please let me know why Howard De Silva was doing this and what he thought of it. Uh, it's just pretty funny. So, yeah, it was kind of like binge-watching almost because I could watch or tape the show off-air from five different PBS stations. So by the time I graduated high school in 1991, I had the bulk of the series already taped on VHS from Unearthly Child up through the present, except I started to outgrow the show in the late 80s. And I've mentioned this before. The night that Time and the Ronnie first aired in the States, and for me it was March 26th, 1988, don't ask me how I remember that. <laughs> I was so disenchanted with it that I just turned it off halfway through, probably in before the episode two cliffhanger. And I went to go categorize and sort my baseball cards instead. I was just completely out of it. So I still watched new episodes of McCoy out of loyalty. They would, you know, it was only four serials a year. So that's four weeks a year they would air them. And I watched season 25 with pretty much disinterest and i watched season 26 with kind of revulsion really hated curse of fenric really hated survival really? when i first saw oh, them i have come around on curse of fenric i have not come around on survival and we'll come to those much later in the life <laughs> of this show but when i first watched remembrance it made zero impression on me at all and i know i would have seen that cliffhanger with the dollar coming up the stairs but it didn't make any impression on me as to why this was a seminal moment so when I got to Rec Arts Doctor Who in college in the early 90s, and everyone is talking about Remembrance as one of the greatest stories of all time, I'm like, what are you talking about? This was forgettable. I barely remember it. It made no impression on me. So I was very resistant for a long time to admitting that Remembrance was good because my first memory, it did nothing for me. And it took me a long time 
to get past that first 16 year old impression and see the story for what it is. So I've come around on that and I've come around on Curse of Fenric. But yeah, when I was 16, it was not the kind of television that I thought I'd be talking about 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it probably had more of an impact over here because uh, Doctor Who was kind of like, whenever there was a, like a, a Doctor Who sketch on a comedy show in the UK or anything, they'd always make the gag about Daleks, oh, just go up the stairs, you know, they can't come after us. You know, so to actually then see it happen, a Dalek going up the stairs was actually quite like quite a shock moment. And I think other fans probably of that era in the UK would probably agree to that. But I still remember I probably would have been nearly 16 as well uh, when it aired, I think, October 88, um, going into school the next day and just naively going, did you see Doctor Who last night? Oh my god, it was really good! And then just everybody looking at me, like, in you are, you still watch that piece of rubbish? <laughs> you know, oh god, yeah, I stopped watching that when I was a baby, and it's like, oh, it's like made sure I never mentioned in the show ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's backtrack for the reason that we're here today: Stones of Blood. You would have first watched this, I imagine, when you were about six years old. What impression did Stones of Blood make on you at a tender age? Well, it's interesting because, like, going back to the memories of that, um, like I said, it, Doctor Who is obviously famous for its behind-the-sofa moments. And like I said, I remember the brain of Morbius scaring me as a kid. I remember the, the hand of fear, like, you know, Coming to life in the in the Tupperware box, absolutely scaring the hell out of me. Um, the Master in Deadly Assassin, the Vok robots were quite scary. But then, um, from what I remember as a kid, from the Graham Williams era onwards, it became more of like um, it really kind of like discarded as as we know those gothic horror kind of roots. And sort of like embrace the more sci-fi adventure kind of serials like uh, approach, you know. Obviously, that was the edit that came down from the BBC when you you know you get to learn the history of the show. Um, so I don't remember any behind the sofa moments like from that, and I certainly don't remember even though Stones of Blood, the first two episodes, kind of like go back to like kind of like that gothic hammer feel, you know, with the the devil worshiping around the stone circle. You know, and the blood being poured, uh, you know, and the, the, the you know, human sacrifices uh, potentially. And, you know, I don't remember it ever scaring me. It was just like a thrilling show to watch. You know, you had to catch the next episode to see, obviously, what the new adventure was or what, how the Doctor got out of this situation based on the cliffhanger. So um, th- that would probably be my take from it. It was it more became more like an adventure show for me um from that point onwards i really don't remember any like proper scary moments potentially probably image of the fendal might have been like you know one of those slightly scary bits um but certainly you know even though it's filmed as that you know with the filmed at night and stuff or with those filters on pretending to be night for stones of blood it 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 just didn't i don't recall it ever doing um, the behind the sofa bit for me, even though I really enjoyed it. So the bit where the ogre kill the two campers and 
drain them of blood and turn them into skeletons. Do you recall that at age six? That seems like it could be a potentially scary moment, even though it's a very short scene. Yeah. Um, again, um, I don't recall it off the top of my head. I do recall, obviously, the Ogre, um and obviously the battles with K-9 with that. Uh, and I recall the whole, like, um, you know, the worshipping around the stone circle as well. But I, I don't recall that scene. And obviously revisiting the story, I watched it last week on DVD because it's not out on Blu-ray yet. And then obviously read the novelization, And it's like, it's quite random, that scene, isn't it? Because it virtually comes out of nowhere. You meet these two characters who you haven't seen before, have no impact on the story besides them just happen to be in the woods in a tent and happen to like come across the ogre. And then it, it's, it's, it just moves on. It's like, it's the kind of thing that you, if you know about the history of the show and that obviously, you know, in seventies, Britain, inflation strikes, kind of like what's happening in today's world in, in the UK. Uh, yes. But, um, you know, you'd think that that would be the first thing that a script editor or a producer would go, well, these are these two speaking parts. They have no impact on the story. Like, no, we can't afford that. And they'd... So it, it's it's great that they're in there because it's a fantastic scene. Um, and I, I think it comes across even better in the book because... Terence Dix does a really good thing that that opening chapter, um, which is called The Victims, which is just a brilliant title for a, a chapter. But and the way he describes it, it's almost like he's it's almost like he, he's channeling like um, kind of like James Herbert and and not quite Stephen King, but it's I think Terence Dix might have missed his opportunity to become a bit of a uh, horror writer on the quiet because um, the opening scenes as well in the first chapter of the book are a bit like Dennis Wheatley style, which was a uh, you know a famous British author who was all about villages and, and devil worshipping and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, it's it's just a bizarre scene to have in the show because you meet these two people and then they get killed and then the story moves on. <laughs> When you were six years old, what did you make of the Megara? As I've mentioned on this show before, the Megara were a very big influence on me because I was 11 years old and I suddenly realized that I liked courtroom drama. And then I read the novelization of Keys of Marinus for the first time the same month as Stones of Blood aired on my PBS station. And I realized that I really enjoyed courtroom stuff. And that, of course, ended up being a huge influence on my eventual a career, a version of which I'm still doing today. So I saw the Megara at age 11, and you could fairly say they changed my life because it set me on a course towards practicing law. Probably not too many Doctor Who fans could say that, but when you're six years old, what did you make of all the courtroom stuff, Tom Baker putting on the barrister's wig, that sort of thing? I, it was it was just the Doctor doing his usual kind of like spiel to try and get out of the situation. Um, you know, and it's the kind of thing that that you expected the character to do. Um, you always expected him to have moments like that to outwit the the villain of of that particular story, which is obviously what he, he's trying to do. Um, it's interesting that in in the book, their their spheres 
uh, or described as like metallic spheres, aren't they? Or spheres of light, and rather than the little fairy lights that are actually in the show. Um, but um, I think I touched upon this in one of the Trap One podcasts a while back. Um, as a kid, I think you see things differently, and as long as the story is good and you know grabs you, you don't notice the kind of like what would be in today's eyes seen as poor special effects and they were probably seen as poor special effects when it was broadcast in 78 you know but i think there's a kind of innocence uh when you're watching at that age and i noticed this when um i had obviously my son and he was growing up and he went through his dinosaur phase where he would watch anything with dinosaurs in and to him it didn't matter that it was like jurassic park or the Land Before Time, or Disney's Dinosaur, or Doctor Who's Invasion of the Dinosaurs, all the dinosaurs in all those stories looked exactly the same like dinosaurs to him. There weren't any poor special effects to his eyes. you know. And I think the way they did the Megara was probably very similar to obviously how they did the Vardens in the previous year in the Invasion of Time, which you've just recently done, haven't you? podcast which i listened to the other day yes um, you know and obviously that is that's even worse that it's kind of like just sheets of tinfoil kind of like cso'd onto the, the tv screen um but as a kid you, you don't notice that because you're caught up in the story you know and for me um that's like how i would have viewed it i never saw poor special effects and never really saw that until I actually started getting a little bit older. And you kind of like your critical kind of like part of your brain then starts to like, you know, develop. And then you start to see stuff and go, oh, that looks a bit ropey compared to this Hollywood blockbuster I saw at the cinema last week. Yeah. It's really funny that you mentioned that because when I was six years old, when I was the age that you were when Stones of Blood came out, this is before I heard about Doctor Who wouldn't have known about it. This was late 1979, 1980. I was obsessed with the Sid and Marty Croft series, Land of the Lost, which had been a Saturday morning live action series in the early 70s. It was the only Sid and Marty Croft show that ran for three seasons. Most of them were one season and done. Land of the Lost had a lot of legs. And there was a strip version of that airing in syndication Monday through Friday called Croft Superstars. And every day of the week was a different Sid and Marty Croft series. So Monday would have been Land of the Lost. I forget the rest of the schedule, but I think Friday would have been Far Out Space Nuts, which is uh, Gilligan, Bob Denver, and Chuck McCann, a Brooklyn comedian slash performance clown, accidentally trapped on a rocket and every week they land on a different planet, unable to get home. And the reason they get trapped on the rocket is because they're NASA maintenance men and they're loading lunch onto the <laughs> rocket. So Bob Denver is trying to load breakfast. He calls out breakfast. Chuck McCann presses the breakfast button. Bob Denver goes lunch. Chuck McCann presses the launch button. And Bob Denver goes, I said lunch, not launch. And they accidentally <laughs> launch into space. So. Whoever designed that rocket for NASA clearly made a big mistake putting the lunch button next to the launch button. So this is indicative of what Sid and Marty Croft were doing. It's the height of comedy. Let's give a quick listen right now. 
Land of the Lost, uh, compared to that, was actually a pretty serious science fiction. They got David Gerald, he of the Trouble with Tribbles, and a very well-known sci-fi legend. He was the script editor for the first season of Land of the Lost, and he got Walter Koenig, uh, Chekhov, to, <coughs> to write a pretty pivotal episode for season one of Land of the Lost. And it had a story arc, and it had recurring characters, and they got in a lot of pretty well-known sci-fi writers uh, to handle the first two seasons of Land of the Lost. So when I'm watching this at age five slash six, it's tremendously engaging sci-fi and it's got dinosaurs right about the time that I was becoming dinosaur obsessed. So for me, watching the opening credits of Land of the Lost, uh, there's uh, you know a family on a raft, and then there's an earthquake, and the raft plunges down an abyss and winds up in this alternate dimension with uh, multiple suns and moons. And that's where there are dinosaurs and sleestacks, uh, the uh, bipedal reptiles played by a couple of college basketball stars of the time. So when I'm watching this in 1979, I think this is the most epic, well-done science fiction series ever made. Then gets taken off the air, didn't see Land of the Lost for a very long time. This is before commercially available VHS and, of course, before DVD. I now have the entire series on DVD. Then in 1993, Jurassic Park comes out. Then in 1996, I go to the Doctor Who convention in Chicago, Visions. And in the dealer's room there, somebody was selling a bootleg cassette of the first four episodes of Land of the Lost. And of course, I'm a starving law student. I don't have a lot of disposable cash. I take $20 out of next week's grocery budget, and I buy this bootleg VHS with the first four episodes of Land of the Lost. I drive back from Chicago to my little apartment uh, in the Midwest where I was going to law school and I watch one episode a night after class and before doing my prodigious amounts of homework. And I was appalled because as John Nathan Turner said, the memory cheats. Well, the memory surely cheated. I'm going to play the audio now and you folks go listen, go watch the video as well. And you will see what I mean. Marshall, Will and Holly. On a routine expedition Met the greatest earthquake ever known High on the rapids They struck their tiny raft Plunged them down a thousand feet below To the land of the lost
so the waterfall is a stream of water on a little tabletop, and the raft is CSO'd in, and the earthquake is, uh, again, uh, a foam rock on the tabletop being dropped down into a little trickle of water that represents the stream. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there were some groundbreaking visual effects done for Saturday morning TV in the early 70s, but when you watch Land of the Lost after Jurassic Park, you have to really feel bad for your misspent childhood. And I'm sure a lot of Doctor Who fans came to the same reckoning in the 1990s when television is advancing by leaps and bounds, but their show is stuck in the Graham Williams era with its <laughs> with its low budget. So... That's the TV. We've talked about how these visual effects don't perhaps age very well, but here we are 45 years later still talking about the show regularly. How did you come to the novelizations? Uh, <clears throat> the novelizations uh, were quite readily available. Uh, I remember our school library uh, had them, but had the hardback versions, uh, which obviously you didn't really like see uh, you know, in, in stores. But in the town that I live in, um, at Back in the, the the day, like when I obviously uh, that we're talking about in the late seventies, early eighties, there was like a big. I would describe it. Well, it was called a news agency. It was called NSS News Agents, but it wasn't just a news agency. It was my like obviously the downstairs section had obviously lots of magazines, newspapers, and then had like a the book section at the back. And then obviously you had stationery on the other side, and then obviously in in on. Near, near the tills and everything. You had, obviously, the sweets, candy, the chocolate and all that. Then the stairs went upstairs and they had an, an amazing toy department where, obviously, I used to buy a lot of my, uh, like, you know, toys when I was a kid. You know, you'd get treated if you went shopping with your mum, like, you know, I'll buy you a Star Wars figure if you keep quiet and you carry the bags home kind of thing. But back in the book section, obviously, they had... Um, in the children's section and hopefully a science fiction section. And that's where they had probably about four shelves worth of target novelizations. So they were very good at keeping like literally every single like title that you could get uh, was there. And it was kind of like you were spoiled for choice. And I remember the the time when I first discovered uh, target novelizations that there was actually Doctor Who books um and just seeing like the, the the wave of all these covers and he had obviously covers by you know Chris Arkilios mm. uh who was the predominantly like you know original uh cover artist uh and then obviously you've got Andrew Skettler as well who I believe has done the cover for Stones of Blood yes and yes then, he did very effectively too yeah and then obviously the, there's other um artists as well and you kind of like just it was like well, what do I choose? What do I choose? And I remember the very first book that I bought was Doctor Who and the Zabi. And I don't know why on earth I chose that because it's got William Hartnell on the cover. It's got a big kind of like, it's got the Zabi, which is like a big ant. And it's got the Minoptera, which is like a big butterfly. And I don't know whether it was the artwork that attracted me, but I remember obviously then taking that home and then reading that and, being a little bit disappointed because the book, I think the book's better than the the TV story. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the TV story. Yeah, I get the fact that it's ambitious and and all the rest of it, but 
it doesn't really work for me. So it's amazing that that didn't put me off the the books for for <laughs> life. But then obviously I then you know in between like you know you'd like this week do you want a Star Wars figure or this week uh, you can have a Doctor Who book you know uh, on on the shopping trip or you could you know use your pocket money. Uh, and then obviously I just, I used to like buy a book probably every a couple of weeks, you know, and they were quite cheap at the time. Um, I mean, this one is says 95p. Uh, and this one is a from published in 1980, reprinted 1981. So I've got a reprint here. You have the uh, second edition. I have the fourth edition from 1984 and mine is a pound 35 in the UK. So oh, inflation wow. yeah. took its toll on those three years. But I've got some editions where they say that they're they're forty p or or forty five p on the back of them uh, huh. that I might have bought, you know. And obviously, you know, I went for stories that either I could remember or stories that looked, you know, purely off the artwork. You'd you'd go off the artwork and then then the description on the back of of the book, you know. So. That's how you used to approach like old stories back back then, you know, because there was like as we've said in the UK, uh, you know, we didn't have like the shows repeated like on a regular basis. You were lucky if you got a repeat at Christmas, and then you were lucky if you got, you know, a story aired in the summer, you know, the following summer of the previous year. So, uh, yeah, that's how I used to uh, I like came to the target books and the, the novels. What's your first memory of reading Stones of Blood, the Terence Dix adaptation, and how does it hold up for you today? Um, well, like I say, I must have bought it in 1981. Um, so, and I think it's probably of that transition of um, the, reading the books was the, the best way of getting back into, like, re-experiencing the story and I, the, the thing I liked about the Doctor Who books at the time when I was a kid is that yeah we do criticise them these days for them not being the most detailed or long or you know some of them are literally just a, an adaptation of the, the script with a few description uh, paragraphs put in them but they were they were great to read because they really took you back into the story and there was a couple that I used to like, you know, reread on a regular basis. You know, um, probably some of them more like the earlier ones than some of the later ones. You know, but you know, a hundred pages long or hundred and twenty pages long. You know, that you could read them in like a full like afternoon. You know, like a Sunday afternoon, you could read that. You'd, you'd be taken back to what the story. You'd remember bits of what you'd seen on the TV, or if it was a story that you hadn't watched. You can just imagine, like how good it would be, just from the how it's described in the book, and um, yeah, rereading it now. <laughs> it's a bit brief. <laughs> well, there's some great descriptive bits in it. It's like I said, the opening chapter, you know, the whole bit of like them, you know, worshiping around the stone circle. And then feeding, uh, you know, the blood to the ogre, and you know, there's some great descriptions. You know, what fed by their warm blood they crave, the ogre were awakening from their long sleep. That's a great, you know, sentence. You know, and 
most of it is virtually like as the script with a few you know, extra bits in. But you know, it it did it. It does its job. You know, it kind of like it goes along at a fast pace. Um, it could be more descriptive or fill in some bits. Um, you know, but it doesn't, you know, and it's probably one of the times when Terence was probably churning these out quite on a regular basis and they needed one a month, you know. But chapter nine, the, the victims, that opening um, um, section is, is really good. And I think Terence missed his uh, calling there as a probably a, a horror writer for uh, young adult novels. So I have two points to mention in response to that. You talk about a book a month, you are quite literally correct so from january to june 1980 terence publishes six books in six months which is an insane pace you have underworld in january which is standard about 120 pages you've got invasion of time which my guest host covered last week on this show which is 140 pages his longest book in three years and then march april may and june he turns out all for the last four key to times books so stones androids crawl and armageddon march april may and june each book is about 120 pages long this basically means that he is writing 740 pages of fiction in six months then he takes a three-month break and then he comes back with books in october sorry september october and november so that is nine books in 11 months. And after that, it's another 11 months before he publishes his next novelization. So nine books in 11 months and then an 11 month holiday where he was presumably writing one of his many, many other book series. It's an incredible pace, the likes of which we will probably never see matched uh, today. And the fact that he never has a run on sentence, never has an awkward turn of phrase. And the fact that he condenses so much good stuff into a short book two more points so you talk about the scene with the campers uh, the chapter called the victims yeah. looking at that now i have memories of that being very atmospheric and scary but it's only about a full page of text a little yeah. more than half a page on the first page of chapter nine which is uh, page 87 and then a little more than half a page on page 88 it's only about a page plus of text David Fisher has a chance to rewrite this novelization on audio a decade ago, which just came out this year via, via the revived Target imprint. Yeah. His novelization, when condensed to print, is about 70 pages longer than Terrence. We did a Trap 1 on this, and I'll put a link to the Trap 1 Stones of Blood episode, which I moderated in the show notes. But when it comes time to write this scene with the campers, the David Fisher version is not that much longer than the Terrence version. So you could argue that Terence is less is more. He packs in more memorable turns of phrase in a much shorter book, even though it's only a page. What a page! Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a fantastic like, like you say, page and a half that just introduces these two uh, campers out of nowhere, and then bump with you know they they're gone, that they're killed by the ogre, and it's fantastic. You know, just it grabs your attention. Uh, you know, it's a similar way where you know it's quite effectively filmed in, um, you know, in in the actual story itself by Daryl Blake. You know, it's it comes across quite well. You know, given the limitations of the budget and everything, you know, it's quite a little spine chilling sequence that literally 
he's slap bang in the middle of like um, Tom Baker doing his comedy stick as a, a courtroom. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And the fact that Terrence is able to humanize these two campers in barely a page of text really speaks to his writing skills. I should ask, have you read the David Fisher version yet or heard the David Fisher audio? I haven't, no. I've yet to order the the, the, the latest batch of uh, Target reprints and obviously reissues. Um, so I will be uh, obviously looking to get those um, as soon as possible because, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to... Um, uh, the the redone versions of um, obviously City of Death, which was done by James Goss, um, yes. and it's, you know, Revelation and, and Resurrection of the Daleks by Eric Sayward weren't the, the best, but, but you know it's nice to obviously have new versions of these stories, and obviously you know when um, the original writer um, comes to the story, you know. It's nice to see, obviously, how they would approach it, and you know, given with no BBC budget to restrain them, you know, which we've seen in some of the the early Target novels, like you know, with Malcolm Hulk when he was adapting his own stories, you know, like kind of like put more flourishes in there, and so I'm be interested to see how David Fisher does does that with um, both Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara. It's interesting that you say, because I expected them to be a lot longer, that you say that they're only about 70 pages like uh, longer than the actual uh, original novelization. I was quite surprised at that. I thought they'd be quite a bit longer. There are parts of his redone version of Stones of Blood that are necessarily better than Terrence, because he has a chance to correct some plot holes, he has a chance to add some detail that would not have been in Terence's brief. Terence is doing six books in six months, 120 pages, and then nine books in 11 months. David Fisher has a year to do the new version of Stones of Blood and then a year to do the new version of Androids of Tara. But if you also compare specific portions of the text, and I point these out on my Trap 1 podcast on it, I'm not going to duplicate that here, Except to say that I will come back to the David Fisher novelizations in publication order on this show, which is a couple of years away on the calendar. But just to plug myself on Trap 1, I'll point out a couple of things where I think Terrence's text is actually better than David Fisher's text, even though David Fisher has a lot more space to work with. Uh, Again, the Fisher book is longer and more detailed, and it's better in spots because he's working from a different brief and he has more time and space and a word count. But Terence's prose is so good that there are moments where Terence's less is better than David Fisher's more. So, any closing thoughts on Stones of Blood? I then want to challenge you to a game of 20 questions because this is your first time on the show. I was looking forward to that. <laughs> um, I think, um, probably looking at it from today's eyes, it's, it's, a, it's very much a story of two halves. You've got the gothic horror kind of like Hammer-esque kind of style, Dennis Wheatley, devil worshippers in a English village, um, first two episodes. And then it does that Graham Williams thing of going a bit more fantastical and more sci-fi and, you know, doing something quite different for its next two episodes. Yeah, you go back to, obviously, um, Professor Rumford and K-9 on Earth, but... Predominantly, you're then on the the spaceship that's trapped in hyperspace with the Doctor Romana and, and Vivian Faye. So um, it is, and I, those episodes three and four, or the second half of the story, aren't as good 
as the first part of the story. So it's very much a story of two halves, I think, if you if you you look at it today. And I am, of course, a vocal fan of the Megara courtroom stuff second half of the story. So we'll just leave it at that. I will now preface, this is the first time that I am challenging somebody to a game of Doctor Who Literature 20 questions since I had a chance to play the contest last week with Mark as the guest host. It was a lot harder than I thought it would be, and I got it in a decent amount of time, but I've been doing this quiz for almost a year on this show, and playing it as a contestant was a lot harder than just being the one who asks the questions. So I will tell you, Jason from the UK, that I have picked a Doctor Who story at random from the randomizer.net. It is any story between 1963 and 2022. I don't know if Power of the Doctor has been loaded on there. So I guess that's a spoiler. It is not Power of the Doctor. But (laughs) it is any other story from the run. You have 20 yes or no questions to figure it out. My good friend, what is your question number one? Uh, I think we'll go with the obvious. Is it a, a story from the classic run? No, it is not a story from the classic run. Question number two. Is it a David Tennant story? No, it is not a David Tennant story. Question number three. You've just managed to X out about 80% of Doctor Who right there. <laughs> Question number three. Uh, is it a Christopher Eccleston story? No, it is not Christopher Eccleston. Now you've knocked out 81% of Doctor Who. <laughs> Question four. Okay, is it a Stephen Moffat written story? Yes, it is written by Stephen Moffat. Now, I could interpret the question, is it Stephen Moffat the showrunner or Stephen Moffat the name on the script? Yes, it is Stephen Moffat the name on the script. Question five. Is it Heaven Sent? (laughs) (laughs) No, it is not Heaven Sent. That's a good place to start. Question six. Uh, Is it a Matt Smith story? Yes, it is a Matt Smith story. Question seven. Does it feature River Song? Yes, it does feature River Song. Question eight. Does it feature Clara Oswald? No, it is not a Clara Oswald story. And I think you now have uh, fallen behind the pace that I set last week. (laughs) Question number nine. (laughs) Right. Okay, so do, 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 uh, bo, 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 bo. is it a season six story, series six? By season six, you mean Stephen Moffat's second season? No, it is not season six A slash six B. Question ten. Okay, is it the Time of Angels? No, it is not Time of Angels. Question eleven. So yeah, Time of Angels, Flesh and Stone. I think was his first two parter. It is not that. Dorica opens. Yes, there we go. Uh, So the way the randomizer.net works, and I didn't want to say this up front because it would be a huge spoiler. It treats the two-part stories as one. So it gave me the Pandorica opens slash the Big Bang as this week's choice. Okay, right. So if you had gotten either one, I would have given it to you. Question 11 is pretty respectable, uh, right in the middle of the pack. Good job. I am now going to reload the randomizer to pick the story for my next victim. <clears throat> I mean, my next guest. <laughs> Not bad for a first attempt. Oh, wow. So whoever comes on the show next to play 
20 questions, you will find the answer very funny. So Jason from the UK, I would encourage you to listen to the next episode that has a game of 20 questions, because after you and I spoke this week, you will find the answer very, very funny indeed. And that's about as much as I can say without giving away spoilers. So Jason, where else can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am on as at DjangoMac72. And then you can also find me on YouTube at the YouTube channel, Bearded Geek Toy Reviews. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll get you on uh, back here again for a future book. Have a great night. Thank you very much. See you then. Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood, written by Terence Dix, televised as the Stones of Blood, teleplay by David Fisher, televised in October and November 1978, published in March 1980. Chanting, hooded figures gather inside a ring of ancient stones using rituals of blood sacrifice to awaken the sleeping evil of the Ogri. The Doctor and Romana go from the countryside of present-day England to a deep-space cruiser trapped in hyperspace in their attempt to track down an alien criminal and unravel the mystery of the Stones of Blood. Luckily, they have the help of the faithful canine. Before this podcast, I made several attempts to read the full Target pilgrimage. When I was a tween and had more free time than I do today, I would read the Target books episode style. I'd read one episode a night from two separate books in story order on different tracks. So, for example, a Hartnell and a Davison. Of course, this is before I had all the books available, and long before all the stories had been novelized, so there were holes in my pilgrimage. Oh, and I didn't always know where the cliffhangers were, so I often had to guess. Ah, to live in the 1980s. Then there was a good period of about 20 years where I didn't read the books all that much. I'd occasionally pull out John Peel's two-volume The Daleks Master Plan and read that over 13 nights, again, not always knowing where the cliffhangers were. But between the early 90s and the year 2010, I didn't do any mass or long-term target rereads. I was never too far from the books, They all moved with me to Los Angeles in early 2007, and then back to New York City with me a couple years later. But I just didn't read them all that much anymore. Thought I'd outgrown them. At the end of 2010, the urge struck me, so I started a reread in random order. A book a week. Again, the equivalent of an episode a day. Starting with Snake Dance, and then Time Lash, and then Bouncing Around, 
wherever the random number generator took me. Now, confession, I had the PDFs of the targets by then, so was reading on my Kindle rather than the print books. In September 2011, I was halfway through the demons when, while taking the A train up to Hell's Kitchen to bring my kid to daycare before going to work, yes, our kid's daycare was in Hell's Kitchen, make of that what you will, a stroller malfunction caused my Kindle to smash onto the subway floor and stop working, forever frozen at a page inside part one of the demons. It took two weeks for the replacement Kindle to arrive, but I kept on with the project on the new device, probably made it two-thirds of the way through the entire series. I had my blog going by then, Doctor Who Novels at WordPress.com, that's DR Who Novels, but I wasn't very good about writing blog entries on every single book. I think I ended up doing entries for just six or seven, but otherwise the read-through project was just me and my own internal monologue. Now, in May 2013, I had another comical accident, a collision with another train. This time it was me who collided with the train, which resulted in a fracture to my left olecranon. That's the ball joint part of the elbow, the word I did not know before that day. And my Kindle, which was at this point in the middle of part four of the arc in space, landed on the ground, the train platform, just about as hard as I did. So that was two Kindles that broke in the middle of 1970s Doctor Who novelizations due to unfortunate collisions with subway trains. Both great books, too. It was a couple of months before I got a new Kindle to replace the broken one, the second broken one, so that was the end of the Target read-throughs for another good long while. For Memorial Day in the States in May 2019, I got that Target bug one more time. We were spending the day out at the beach with my in-laws, and I was looking for something to read on my Kindle. I once again turned to a random number generator. By now I had the app on my phone and wound up with, you guessed it, the Stones of Blood. I read the part one material on the holiday itself and the balance of the story over the next three days. I found part one in particular exhilarating, marveling at Terence's rapid-fire observations and asides on the story. He never let a paragraph go by without adding some neat little spin, and I just had a great time. This was the most enthused that I'd been about the writing of Terence Dix in a very long time, but it was just, again, energizing. So my great target read-through project continued again, a book a week, this time going in story order. Androids of Tower, Power of Krull. Well, you guys are Doctor Who fans, you know what comes next. Until March 2020. I distinctly remember being in the middle of Paradise Towers on that Friday the 13th, which was the day, really, when the gravity of COVID-19 caught up with us. That Monday the 16th wound up being my last day in the office for 27 months. Ten days after lockdown began, I got sick myself. So, I never got past Remembrance of the Daleks. Aronovich is a great writer, but he's very difficult to read when you have 102 fever and a pulse of 133 and a really, really vicious cough. So, once again, illness or injury or Kindle malfunction stopped my read-through. Sheesh. Let's hope that when this project ends, it's because I run out of books rather than for some more calamitous reason. The point is, on that unofficial first day of summer 2019, 
I just fell in love with the writing of Terrence Dix, and that affair has continued now, three and a half years later. Then I went to the Doctor Who Ratings Guide, run by my friend and frequent guest on this podcast, Stacy Smith, and I decided to look at the Ratings Guide page for the Stones of Blood novelization, which at that point featured only one review. And boy, was it ever negative. The reviewer didn't like the TV story. That's fine. I do like it. I love it, in fact, as UK Jason and I discussed earlier in the program. The other reviewer took Terence to task in the novelization for not adding enough background detail and for missing the rather obscure in-joke that is the name Cornish Fugus. I'll be honest, I was in my mid-40s on that day in 2019. I'm older than that now. But that was the day that I first learned that a Fugu is an ancient cave. Can't blame Terence for not knowing that. But I certainly do think there's a ton of added background detail, even without the lesson on Fugus. I like Terence's print reaction to the doctor being mistaken for the estimable Professor Fugus for one thing. Quote, it might be useful to have a new name for a while, but he didn't much care for the sound of this one. I also credit Terence for explaining the reference to who is John Aubrey. Now, on the PDF copy, Aubrey is said to be a fatuous diarist. Sadly, that's not accurate. In the print book, which I have in front of me right now, it's famous. Even though a fatuous diarist is much funnier than a famous diarist. That's found poetry, if you will. Terence also runs a long way with the script's mention of Julius Caesar, even letting the doctor take credit for disguising himself as a soothsayer and uttering the line, Beware the Ides of March. Terence also works in a Marie Celeste reference. One day, I'm going to add a running tally of all Doctor Who novelizations that mention that ship, and I think Mary Celeste is how some people pronounce it, those who like to pronounce it correctly, and I'll bet there's at least 20 stories, not even counting the chase, that mention that particular ship. The other reviewer on the ratings guide was disappointed that David Fisher hadn't written the novelization himself. Of course, time marches on for all of us, and now we do have the Fisher adaptation for ourselves. And it's worth a fair comparison to Terence's. Check out the Trap 1 episode for that one. But let's forget about the grievances of a 15-year-old review, and let's talk for the rest of this episode about what Terence gets right in Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood. Now again, as UK Jason and I discussed a while back, Terence is in the book-a-month phase of his target career. So one might understand, if not condone, if he merely transcribed the script without adding anything. But that's not what Terence did. It's never what he did. Terence knows how to set a scene in as few words as possible. And he constantly uses the other space to level jabs at the script, if he doesn't like the script, or at the villains working their way through the story, if he does like it. The opening chapter here repeats the phrase, It might have been Stonehenge to refer to the eponymous stone circle. That's an effective bit of scene setting. We learn that Romana's, quote, brisk bossiness infuriated the Doctor, which is a great five-word summary of the season 16-long adversarial relationship between those two. Romana responds to the Doctor's circuitous lesson on English rain by saying, I see, while thinking in her head, not seeing at all. Romana also, upon hearing a character use the expression brown owl, wonders, quote, if the people of this peculiar planet had the power to change into birds. That ends up being a plot spoiler, by the way. 
canine is characterized as, quote, quite satisfied with being an automaton. When Romana says that he's on his last legs, Terence tells us, canine didn't actually have any legs, and you can imagine that he was proud of his own dry wit. Terence has great ease in writing for Tom Baker's Doctor, who, as we learned from the missing and past Doctor adventures of the 1990s and early 2000s, can be a difficult thing to reduce to print. Terence observes that the Doctor, quote, seemed more interested in the stone circle than in their mission. That's the key to time mission. The Doctor is overwhelmed upon meeting Professor Amelia Rumford, which is a wonderful way of describing the force of nature, which was the then 75 years old Beatrix Lehman on TV, one of the great companions who never was. Terence also has old Amelia speak, quote, a rather dated Americanism with conscious pride. Terence has the Doctor observe that provoking people makes them angry, and that's when you learn something. And the Doctor is rather amused by the fussy little Megara. Even the Megara speak with a tinge of sadness when trying to execute the Doctor. You must tell the Megara where time you I just don't tell think, them. I don't think it would do it of any good. They're justice machines, remember? I knew a Galactic Federation wants lots of different life forms, so they appointed a justice machine to administer the law. What happened? They found a Federation contempt of court and blew up the entire galaxy. The court has considered the request of the humanoid here in afternoon as the Doctor. In order to speed up the process of law, it will graciously permit him to conduct his own appeal prior to his execution. Thank you, Your Honor. You may call your first witness. I call as my first witness Miss Romana de Varatnalunda. Me? Mm. But I'm not a witness. The witness will take the stand and be sworn in. The witness will repeat the oath. I swear to tell the truth, repeat. I swear to tell the truth. As far as I am the humanoid. As far as I... Look, I object to the wording. Contempt is punishable by death. Uh, Your Honours, I'm sure that my witness wishes to withdraw that last remark, don't you? Do you? As far as I, a mere humanoid... I'm capable of knowing the truth. I'm capable of knowing the truth. What's that? It assesses the level of truth. Oh, what happens if the level falls? That would be most regrettable, Miss Romana de Varatnalunda. Mr. Varatnalunda, when we open the hyperspace capsules, what do we find inside? Dead things. Dead things? Well, bodies of dead creatures. Dead travellers, I suppose. And when we found the hyperspace capsule in which their honours were travelling, could you see what was inside? No. What do you think was inside? I didn't know. It could have been anything. What? Even creatures still alive? Yes. No further questions. A witness is excused. I may be the only Doctor Who fan in history to choose a career in the law, in part because I saw this episode at an impressionable age, but I stand by my decision. Now I'll admit to not picking up at all on the fact that Vivian Fay was a bad gal hiding as a hero in the first half of the story the first time that I saw it on TV. Hey, I was 11, and not yet fluent in TV tropes. But Terence does a great job of foreshadowing her villainy, without signposting it. She enters as a, quote, tall, black-hooded figure who momentarily looked utterly sinister. But, quote, a closer look revealed a tall, strikingly attractive, dark-haired woman in her 40s. Chapter 5 ends with Vivian having a, quote, faintly mocking smile still on her face, a nifty little mini cliffhanger, shortly before she outs herself as the villain of the piece. When she's finally defeated at the end, 
Terence nicely has her gazing wildly around her, unable to grasp how things had gone so suddenly wrong. Maybe that was a word-for-word stage direction taken from the camera script, but it sounds a lot more like dramatic literary invention to me. Granted, there is the occasional error overlooked in the editing process. Romana remembers visiting Califrax in the previous story, the pirate planet, even though she didn't. Vivian Fay is not silver in her true form in the book, which is a sad loss. Susan Engel looks phenomenal in silver. And the all the rage in Trenton, New Jersey line about robot dogs is explained by saying that the professor could accept anything, however unusual, if it came from America. Hey now. In the end, though, I think Terrence can be proud of his adaptation of The Stones of Blood. The TV episode takes some strange twists and turns, veering from gothic Celtic horror to a high-tech legal drama. The central irony of the story is that the Megara are pursuing Césaire for stealing the Great Seal of Diplos, and then the Doctor himself steals the Great Seal from around Césaire's neck. Spoiler alert, it's the third segment of The Key to Time, right in front of the Megara, and they don't even notice. That's something that could have been pointed out in the novelization, but with his observational humor and economic but keen insights given to each character, Terence really didn't miss too much else about this story. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, our Key to Time mini-season continues with the next Key to Time story in the line. Let's show a certain courtesy to this next book. And if you thought I was too generous to the Stones of Blood, next time I shall not be so lenient. Join me and a popular returning guest as we cross blades with the Androids of Tara. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, Jason McLaughlin, a.k.a. UK Jason. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash doctorwholit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. My old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. My current Twilight Zone watch through under hashtag TZ Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.